Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year 2022. We welcome you all to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I am a cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court-appointed and private, marriage counseling, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one session and also do group settings. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMV Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550. And our website is lifecoachdanamzalag.com. Today, I'm very excited to have for our fifth episode of season four, a very special guest and film producer, John Callis. Now, just like every of my past episode and season, I will leave it up to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. John, the floor is yours, my friend. Good morning, and thanks for having me on your show. Pleasure. Uh, I guess what we want to do is talk a little bit about When the Rain Stops, my memoir, uh, where it started and how it led to a successful life uh, as a director, writer, producer in Hollywood. Um, it, it really started with a three-year-old boy, myself, um, when I lost my dad 10 days after my third birthday. I went spiraling down the, the rabbit hole because I was very uh, depressed, um, very angry um, that I lost my dad. And kids would go, you know, around the, the neighborhood and stuff. And I saw them with their dads and stuff when I started growing older. By the time I was 12 years old, I'm cutting out a lot because th- this, I would wind up telling the whole novel, but, or the <laughs> memoir. But um, by the time I was 12, I was completely out of control. Uh, my mother had just remarried. Um, and they decided with the court, actually, uh, that I needed some guidance. So it was either reform school or military school. So at the age of 12, my mother drove me from New Jersey to uh, the train station in New York City and put me on a train alone to go to military school in Virginia. Um, I watched her getting smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden, I now had abandonment issues as well as depression and anxiety. So by the time I got to uh, 15 years old, approximately, um, I had had it. The voices in my head were just too much to handle anymore. And I attempted a suicide by jumping in a frozen lake. Um, uh, I, I really just couldn't handle it anymore. I, I had no friends. I didn't want to live. I, it just was just too depressing. And when I got out of the lake, because it was too cold to stay in there to die, um, I started thinking this, this, there's gotta be something better. I don't know how, I don't know what to do, but there's gotta be something better. Then a, a, a gentleman who was a coach convinced me to play uh, soccer. He knew I didn't have a dad. He knew that I would make up stories about my father going out on the weekends and stuff because, you know, all the other kids were. And I felt very alone and didn't have any guidance. So he gave me the beginning of um, some confidence in myself because I became a very good soccer uh, player to the point where uh, I was co-captain of the team. Then I got into ice hockey and wrestling, which I became um, uh, undefeated in the state championships and stuff like that. So uh, I found an outlet for all my aggression, but I was still very angry and still uh, filled with anxiety and still having dreams of falling in a spiral and never ending. Um, then uh, eventually uh, I, more mentors came into my life to help me through this. And I started seeing that there was a possibility, but I was still quite depressed. Um, went to college in Colorado okay. where I went up to the mountains from a friend took me up to the mountains and I fell in love with the mountains and my neighbor, uh, Mark O'Brien began helping me through a lot of my traumas um, by telling me that uh, 
one thing I had to learn very quickly was the people who I felt had done so many injustices, like my dad, my mom, and all these other people, had nothing to do with my own personal plight. My path was my path, their path was their path, and they actually were not responsible for how I was feeling, and that I needed to not only forgive them, but I had to learn to forgive myself. Um, and so I started working very hard on that. He guided me through some spirituality, taught me life on a chessboard, believe it or not. You know, with, with every move, there's always another move. You got to think about your opponent and so on and so forth. By the time I got to Los Angeles, after leaving Colorado, um, I started going back down the rabbit hole because, uh, again, I, I finally had found a place I was comfortable with in Colorado, friends that really loved me. And now I'm back in a city that had nothing to do with my life. Um, I was getting my master's degree at Occidental College. Um, and I started really losing it. And a friend of mine who became a director of photography and we ponied up together to help each other in business um, suggested that I go see a therapist. So I started, well, although I had seen therapists in the past, this woman um, and I worked really closely, she got me organized and said, time for you to go into group. And I said, uh-uh. Uh, 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 uh. And she said, well, what, why not? And I said, I really don't want to sit in a room full of strangers and tell them how screwed up I am. She goes, you may learn that you're not as screwed up as you think. So I got into to group reluctantly. And I think the first day I was in there, they asked, okay, what's your story? I said, look, I honestly, I'm not comfortable talking because I don't know what to ask. I don't even know what to look for. And so they said, okay, just listen for a while. And I listened to everyone telling their story around the room and soon realized I wasn't alone. Everyone else in this room, we called ourselves happy neurotics, um, had issues that they were working through and that they were there as a support to start working through these issues. And slowly I started accepting more and more help. Uh, and then I got my first job in the film business, uh, which was I think $25 a day for 12 hour days. Wow. <laughs> I was living large, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. And then um, and that dried up a bit and I fell on my bed crying one, more, one night saying I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I can't do anything. And then I jumped right up and I looked out at the twinkling lights from my bed and I said, you're not a loser. You need to stop this and, you know, pull up your pants and be a man. Get, get going with it. So slowly but surely, I started developing a reputation, became very confident in what I was doing and became very good at what I was doing. And then uh, I started directing, got in the Directors Guild in 1983, which you don't get in the first day in the business. You have to really work hard to get oh, in. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and then I started having a lot of pride in myself, still accepting help. And to this day, I still accept help. Like my wife and I talk all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I told her about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I said, you know, when I was growing up, I made a list in my head of everything that I would want to make me happy. And I said, I went back and looked at it. And everything on that list, I now have. So there's no reason for me to be depressed. Now, when I say that, it, I'm giving a very short version of it. It was not an easy path. And by no means am I telling your audience, oh, look, you just have to do this and magic fairy dust and you're happy. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of soul searching. And above anything, you have to be willing to let other people help you. So now I'm, I'm a very successful filmmaker. I've done some iconic work in the business. Um, I've written five novels, and of course, the sixth one is uh, my memoir, When the Rain Stops. 
And so that brings us to today, very short version of it. Short, yes. Uh, you know, we only have like 35 minutes of the podcast. So this is a good, uh, you know, concise version. Now, um, you said that when you were in Colorado after school, what brought you to move to Los Angeles, knowing that you didn't know anyone there, that all your friends were in Colorado? What pushed you to go to uh, L.A.? Was it because you wanted to go into film or you had no clue at this point what you wanted to do? No, actually, I had a very strong clue because uh, just to backtrack a little bit, remember, I didn't want to tell the whole story, but uh, I'll just give a little bit more. When I was in college in Massachusetts, um, I started out college as a chemistry major because my dad had died of cancer and I wanted to cure cancer. Okay. So one day, my teacher took me for a walk and put his arm around me and said, why do you want to do chemistry? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're an A student, you know, you're getting into three hour labs in and out in 45 minutes and you're beating all the other students. I said, so is there a problem? He goes, yeah you're not a chemist. You don't have the pocket thing. And, the, the, the <laughs> brain. you know, you, you're an artist. You need to go find yourself. I said, well, I'm happy here. He goes, no, you're out. I said, what do you mean I'm not? And he threw me out of his class to go find myself. That day I was sitting on the grass and my African-American friend Liz came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I just got thrown out of chemistry and pushing went, What? And, you know, we talked about that. She goes, can you help me out today since you're not doing anything? And I said, what do you want to do? She goes, well, I'm in a play and we need somebody just to read lines with us. I said, Liz, I'm not an actor. She goes, no, you're not an actor. You're just going to come read lines. I said, okay, hi, all right. I owe you at least that much. So about an hour into the reading, I turned to the director and said, I've, I've got to go do my homework because you can't leave a rehearsal. And I looked at Liz, I said, rehearsal? And the director said, yeah, you're the lead in this. Didn't Liz tell you? And Liz is there. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I wanted to choke her so badly right then. And so I stuck with it. And then I wrote my first play after about three plays that I had done as an actor um, called An Assassinated Love, which they performed during parent-teacher conference. So my career started in the theater. I found people I really resonated with, um, artistic people that encouraged me to be artistic. And so when I moved to Colorado, I got into a school that, was, uh, that had a program called the University of Without Walls, gifted children who knew what they wanted to do. Now, I went there under that auspices, and my um, teacher um, suggested that I start looking more towards the film arts because theater was great, but it's not much of a moneymaker. So I decided to get my master's degree, which moved me out to Los Angeles to Occidental College. There, I met a uh, professor who was doing a minor uh, filmmaking class, and she was a world-renowned documentary filmmaker. And I made a little film, and she pulled me aside and said, you got a really good eye. You you should not be active. You should be doing directing or director of photography. You've got that kind of creative. I thought, what's what's going on here? The world keeps telling me (laughs) I'm creative. You know, so um, I started that way. And uh, I met a guy who got me on the set the first time, Cannonball Run. And... um, and then I started working in pyrotechnics, uh, in blowing up cars and people's brains and all fun stuff wow. to get it out of the system. Fun. Wow. Um, and then it went from there. So during that time, uh, how were you able to manage your anxiety or depression symptoms? Or were you at this point still seeking therapy or did you, were you already like enthralled with all the work that you were doing in LA that you didn't really have time to think about anxiety or depression? No, I was high, highly filled with anxiety and depression and insecurity. I mean, um, it, it was in LA that I told you about the group therapy. That's where that happened. Was oh, in that's LA. Okay. Yeah, that's where it happened in LA. But during that whole period, I, I, my stomach would twist around like crazy. I mean, the first day on the set, you know, my friend John brought me on it. He said, if you stand here, nobody will bother you. Well, 10, 15 minutes later, this 
old grumpy guy comes up and goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm just observing. He goes, no, you're not. Come here. So I thought I was getting thrown off the set. It turned out the guy's name was Harry Woolman, who was a high quality special effects guy, swung from the belt on a hunchback at Notre Dame, did a lot of stunt work, you know, and so he had me rapping primer cord, which I didn't know what it was. I said, what is this stuff? He goes, oh, it's explosives. I dropped it, jumped out of the van. I said, you out of your mind? I'm going to kill this all. He goes, nah, and he takes a match and he's burning it. And he says, see, you can't do anything. It won't blow up. You have to set it off with a cap. Okay. So he took me under his wing, basically. And I stayed with him for a while until I got into the art department. And all this time, I'm still like freezing up like crazy inside going, somebody's going to throw me out. I'm, I'm, I'm just not good enough for this. And I kept saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. You got to refocus. You got to push that reset button. And, and I did a lot of therapeutic work to it. And at that point, I started writing when the rain stopped. Mm -hmm. And I brought it to another therapist who in the next session, uh, when I walked in, started crying. He said, I don't know how you get through life. I really don't. So for that whole hour, I had to get him through the therapy session <laughs> of what was going on in my life. And then Lilia, who was the woman I told you about, really, um, really got me uh, close to being out of the rabbit hole completely. And once I climbed that, I started getting confidence in a lot of work and people started respecting my work and Cruz really wanted to work with me. Um, I felt very empowered again. You know, I felt like I was alive for the first time in my life. Wow. And yeah. Those, those negative voices that you hear about you're not good enough or you're not this or you're not going to accomplish much, do they still come or you know how to basically push them down or ignore them or just change your thought to do, to do something more positive? I think I learned very early on um, not to push them down because if I push them down, they're going to come out in weirder ways. Like I might take it out on my kids or my wife or something. So when they come up, I allow them to be there. What I don't allow is for me to fester with it. I don't allow me to continue with it. I allow myself whatever it is, but I don't just sit there. I say, okay, what's really bothering you? What's frustrating you? And my head says, well, you got to do this, this, and this. And I said, right, calm down. Let's make a list. So I make a list of everything that's on my mind. And then I look at it and go, Oh, that's not really that bad. And then, <laughs> then, then I look at the worst thing on the list that I don't want to do. And that's the first thing I force myself to do. Because if you pick the hardest thing, the rest becomes easier and easier and easier. Now to answer your question, um, even though I was very well respected and known and getting lots of work and all sorts of fun stuff, iconic work, um, I still had that little gut, you know, nervousness. And I soon learned that that was the creative drive that was very beneficial to me because it meant I wasn't going to be arrogant. It was, I wasn't cocky. It made me feel like I needed to do better for myself to prove I'm okay. So I allowed that to become a motivation. In other words, I went back to my acting teacher's idea. She said, if you come in angry, use that in your daily work, find a way to use the energy. So I took that little tidbit and applied it to my life in filmmaking. And to this day, it still works really well. If I get a little antsy, I say, okay, what can I do with this energy, you know? Uh, and, and I try to use it. Um, I don't think depression ever completely goes away any more than a virus in your body that goes dormant. Mm -hmm. What you do learn, well, not what you do, what I learned was to manage it, to, to live with it, manage it, but not let it drag me down the rabbit hole ever again. I am now in control of it, not it in control of me. Beautiful. This is a very good strategy, John. Now, um, when it comes to your, uh, I mean, during that time, your journey to becoming a very successful uh, film director, um, have you ever felt this imposter syndrome where you say, well, I'm doing, I'm directing a movie. Is that going to be 
is, is people going to trust me? Is people going to give me more? Or am I misdirecting people as being a good, you know, like a very, I would say, qualified person, but yet I don't feel qualified to do this. I feel that this movie is out of my league kind of thing. Have you still thought about those process, this uh, imposter syndrome or have you known how to manage it? Well, I think because I came up through the ranks in filmmaking, um, I didn't just walk in. I didn't have a father or somebody who said, here, you've become a, a director or a producer. I had to learn the business from ground level. I mean, I parked cars, as I mentioned, my first, one of my first jobs for $25 an hour. But, you know, I used that later on because when I started having control of the set, most guys would get there and then spend three hours parking all the vehicles. I didn't do that because of knowing how to park cars. I would go two days in advance with a tape measure, measure out all the size of trucks, do a little plot, knew exactly where everyone was going. So in the morning, I had the entire film set up and running within 30 minutes. So I was really able to use that. Um, I think to answer your question, one of the turning points once was I had a job and the crew came up to me almost like in a mutiny. said, you know, we don't think that that uh, you're giving us a fair rate. And, you know, I think there's more money in the budget. And I said, hold on. I went in my office and I, I got really pissed. And I came out with the budget and I threw it on the floor. I said, all right, I'll make you a deal. Anyone in this room finds a penny that I didn't give you guys as your salary, I'll give you my salary on top of it. Otherwise, shut up and get back to work. And I had <laughs> no idea where that came from. So they looked at the budget, they handed it back, said, we're sorry. From that day on, most of those people stay with me for the better part of 20 years. And anytime I called and said, look, all I have is this amount of money in the budget. Please don't take it. If you're going to come pissing and moaning on my set, I won't have it. If you want it, take it. Great. If not, no hard feelings. I'll call you when I have the money. So they soon realized that if I had the money in the budget, including overtime, they would get it. Because as a crew member, I knew what it felt like to be ripped off. So uh, I earned a lot of respect by being very transparent with them. Now, they also realized very quickly that I was going to be very tough. And if they came and started, I said, you know, if you don't like it, there's the door. Just, I don't have time for this crap. Get out. And they'd say, no, 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 no. It calmed down. Um, and then people would come to me and say, well, you know, this was doing it. And, and I'd say, stop. Uh, you know, it's $10,000 an hour for me to listen to you guys argue. What's the issue? Well, we need this and this. And that. I said, fine, you get that. You get that. We done? I said, well, yeah. I said, any other problems? I said, no. Get back to work. <laughs> get back to it. So I started gaining a lot of confidence in my own skill set. Okay. And to this day, um, my wife has to remind me <clears throat> of how much the crews really enjoyed working with me. She tells a funny story, which I won't tell, but um, <laughs> when we got in engaged, um, <clears throat> somebody was talking about wanting to work with me. And they said uh, to her, do you, uh, do you ever work with them? And she goes, yeah, I have. And the gal next to her said, oh, come on, Linda, you're your, your fiance. Like, what? <laughs> So it was it was really a lot of fun to finally feel alive. Good. Um, now, what kind of genre of movie do you do you specialize in, or do you usually take as projects? Interesting question. Um, everyone in Los Angeles seems to pick a genre. What I went in and decided is that if I was going to survive, I can't pick a genre, or I'm going to put myself out of business if I if I lose work. So I didn't pick a genre. I went all across the board. I did documentaries in Russia. I was one of the first people in the MTV scene. Um, I did feature films that were horror. Uh, hate to say it, but Young Lady Chatterley, which wasn't exactly horror, it was pretty good. Um, uh, I made a film with Eric Roberts uh, a couple of years ago called No Solicitors. That's a horror movie because uh, uh, I can't stand solicitors. So I decided I would 
kill them and eat them if they <laughs> rang my doorbell. <laughs> and that's what happened in the film. Um, so I didn't pick a genre. I, I picked essentially what really interested me at the time, which is what my writing's about as well. And the, the six books I've done, none of them are genre driven. Each one's a different genre. Um, and what I wanted to do is tell stories because I have all these stories in me and I didn't see myself as I'm going to just write crime dramas or romance novels and stuff. Um, so that's pretty much it. I, I don't have a genre. But even after establishing your name and your reputation throughout the years of working in Hollywood or L.A. and all that, um, have you found that throughout all the movies that you've directed, you found one that you were more interested in particular or like that you were more into documentary or horror or uh, science fiction or whatever it is? Did you find like because, of course, we all have our interest in specific area of the, the movies or the genre, but was there something for you that you felt more comfortable in working in versus others? Quality, to be honest with you. What, what I look for in any of my work is the quality of the characters and the story. Okay. If it's a crappy story, I, I don't want to do it. I mean, recently I was working with a guy, I'm not going to mention names or anything. And it got to the point where I realized that what I wanted to do creatively was so far away from what he wanted to do. And he was not willing to collaborate. He wanted to rule the roost. So I, uh, I sent him a note and said, listen, this really isn't working for me because as a director, I need creative control and that's not going to happen in this project. So I wish you the best. Here are the files that I've created written for you. Um, I, here's also my agreement that you have complete control over them. Uh, you can use them as you will. So for me, it's all about the characters, the story, and the interest in, in making that kind of work as opposed to, well, I'll just take anything because I want to work. I see. Um, now, just for our listeners, I'm sure that a lot of people who are not very uh, aware of the, the moving industry or um, the difference between a director and a producer. The producer is the one who gets the financing for the movie, and the director is the one who takes care of all the, the filming, the, the recording, etc. Is that correct? Or can a producer be also be a director? Generally not. Um, in my world, because I have the, a very um, unusual brain, I can think business and I can think creatively. So some of the projects when I had my own company, I would direct and produce. But let's break it down. Um, generally, there's an executive producer who's the guy that winds up getting the money. Then they usually hire a producer who will manage the money and the crew, hire everybody, uh, hire the director, um, get all of those elements together. The director is really responsible for what's in front of the camera. And that means how the actors will perform, the, uh, the uh, shots that you'll do, the wardrobe, the lighting, everything will be the director's responsibility. No, he won't do it. He'll hire a director of photography who will collaborate with the director to come up with the right way of shooting. So a lot of times what I do with my director of photography is I'll block out a scene and then I'll go and talk to them. I'll have ideas about how to shoot it, but because I'm hiring somebody who does that as a living, uh, I want their input very much so. And nine times out of 10, they come up with stuff that I wouldn't have thought about because they're focused on how to film it. I'm focused on the actors, the blocking, and is the story being told. So there's a division. Um, and then, of course, he does all the lighting and everything. And I'll look at it and say, you know, I think it's a little too dark in the background. Can we add a little light? I'd like a little bit more rim on the shoulders. And he'll say, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll work collaboratively together. Um, there's an old cliche that during pre-production the producer has the director by 
the uh, yeah. short end. And on the set, the director has the producer by the short end. So uh, it's a give and take. I, I really like working very carefully with my producers when I work because they have a lot of pressure and, and they need the support. And does the producer hire the writers or is it the director? Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, most of the time, the writers have submitted their scripts or, or their agent has, and maybe a producer's found the script and said, I want to, I want to, uh, option the script for six months to a year to raise the money, and then they go out and look for it. So uh, sometimes the director finds a script and then goes and finds a producer. So there's no one set parameter. Now, as a writer-director, I have to sometimes even produce to get my material, like no solicitors. I wrote, produced, and directed the thing. Um, yeah, it, that was no fun. Because look, I'm really good as a producer and I hate it. I do not like doing it. Um, but I was I was pretty well known as a producer. But I'm I'm pretty sure that some of our listeners are an avid filmmakers. They want to get into this industry. Um, they they want to be able to know exactly the intricacies of the work that is uh, involved in it. I mean, I produced my own TV show for a while when I used to live in Maryland, uh, John, and uh, it was called The Happiness Journey. So probably it was in a TV studio, and I know exactly all of what's required to be able to get the technical directors, the cameraman, et cetera, to be able to you know, uh, record a, a, a scene. And then of course, redoing the takes over and over and over again until it's perfect. Um, but when it comes to the process, like for example, uh, sometimes like I think I read in, uh, that uh, Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible 7, it took them around five months to be able to film or to record, or I would say tape everything. Now, how do you do the scene? Can you sometimes do a last scene first and then the, the, the first scene at the end? Can, is there like a specific order that you take through the process? Or is there like, okay, now today, we're gonna take that, uh, that actor, this actor, we're gonna do scene number 15 or whatever it is. How do you divide all this? Okay, um, first of all, there's a thing called pre-production in which you have to do what's called the breakdown of a script. Okay. Now in a script, it will, let's say through the whole storyline of the script, maybe it says uh, Dan's house or office. Then it might say uh, Dan's parking lot. Then it might say Bob's cafe. So you'll lump all of the scenes that are in that location together. Okay. Cause you've got to shoot all this. Now it could, it could be like, the scene five is done on uh, in storyline uh, day one. Scene seven is done three months later. So it may change the whole topography. It might be snowing or raining. So you have to think all that thing out. The second thing you do with each scene, like let's say we're in your office uh, and there are three people, you have to light in one direction and shoot all of the characters in that direction. So sometimes your brain kind of goes. <laughs> Because, you know, you're trying to get a reaction off of, of, off of you, let's say, that's going to be um, five minutes later in the scene where we've already cut several times to different characters, but I'm staying on you for the entire time that I'm shooting you throughout all of the scenes so that I get everything I need on you. Then I turn the lights to the other way. Because if you keep going back and forth, you're going to kill yourself because generally it takes two to three hours to light a scene. So once you light it one direction, you want to shoot everything there and then move the camera to the next direction. I see. And when it comes to the editing part, and I know the editing is hell, <laughs> um, usually how long does it does it take as long as the time that it took to tape the movie? Or does it take even longer? Well, I think it's um, it's it's a dance um, because as you're shooting, 
you're sending over what's called dailies, which means every day you shoot, you send it over to the editor. And it has a clapper that says scene five, take six. And you send notes saying, I like scene seven, um, but in uh, a take seven, I mean, but uh, only the, the line dot, 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 dot in that. So the editor has to look at that and say, okay, I've got three takes of scene seven. I need to use this line because the editor, uh, director really likes that. Okay. Um, now, here's the caveat to that. Which, <laughs> I'm sure there's always one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember spending about two hours on one shot, you know, and I thought, wow, this is great. I got to the editor room and said, all right, let's look at it. And we're looking and said, hey, wait, 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 where's that scene? He goes, oh, you mean the one that I said, yeah. He goes, didn't work. I threw it up. I went, what? Whoa. He said, it didn't work. I said, bring it up. I want to see it. So he put it back in and I looked and I went, he says, it doesn't work, does it? I said, mm, no, no. And it gets frustrating because sometimes you work really hard on something and it doesn't work and you've got to be willing to let it go because you have to think in terms of, is it telling the story? The editor's there for a reason because he's the, he or she is dispassionate about the material. They're looking for the best performance, how to cut this thing together to make it smooth. And sometimes the shots you want are just not going to work. And then sometimes during the shoot, the editor might call and say, hey, scene seven, I need a close-up of the hand grabbing that glass. I don't have anything to cut to. So in the middle of all the shooting on that day, you know, when you, you give the crew a break, you say, hey, let's get this shot real quick. And the DP will light it. You get the glass shot. You send it off to the editor. He goes, that's what I need to thank you about. So, oh, okay. So you try to keep up with the editor and the editing while you're being, while you're shooting. Um, if you wait to the end, obviously it gets really elongated yes. and then you're stuck with what you've got. Or if you have the money, you can go in and do what's called, a, you know, uh, either reshoots or additional material that gets real expensive. So you try to do that. So do you, do you think like if you finish at the end of the day and you send them those specific takes, can two days later, the editor say, you know what? When you send me the, the material two days before, I felt that this scene or this take had to be redone. So do you go back and having to bring back those actors that has to do that scene again? Or does it, or how long do you say, well, no, we're too much into the production that you just take the one that we had already done. Is that something that happens or you have to really adapt or basically do what the editor wants? I think E, all of the above what you just said, because sometimes the actors are not available. They've gone on to another film. Uh, sometimes you're out of a location and can't go back to shoot it. Um, for example, that scene about the glass, right? Um, we had already moved on to another location. But what we did know is what the background looked like. So we faked it and got a really close shot. So you didn't notice that it was out of context. Uh, so, would you use like sometimes green screen to be able to read? Uh, no, that wasn't green screen. It was, let's say, well, your walls are white, my walls are white, right? And so you go to a, a, a desk and you see a hand grabbing a glass. Under it is a, um, a pad, you know, like a writing pad. So you get the prop master. He brings the writing pad. You put the glass on there. You get real close. So it looks like the desk that we just shot at, which it isn't. Okay. And you'll never notice it. Oh, <laughs> it is fascinating. I mean, I, like I said, for me, I just produced like 30 minutes shows. Uh, but movies and all, that's, that's really interesting. Um, is there any uh, advice or would say recommendation that would you do to, or to give to our listeners about um, you know, them feeling depressed right now or anxious and them not knowing exactly how they see their life from this point forward? What would you, as a, you know, as a film producer or even as someone who has gone through those same challenges, what would you tell them as an advice? 
how to get into the film business? No, no. In, in general, those who actually suffers from depression and anxiety, suicide attempts, what would you tell them that, you know what, don't give up, just pursue your dreams, do whatever it takes, um, they get the help that you need to get, uh, go speak to mentors, whatever it is. What would be your recommendation? Because me as a therapist is different, but for you, that is. Well, I guess my recommendation is, is um, first and foremost, don't think it's going to happen overnight. It takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of hard work. It takes a willingness to recognize it. Um, discover, uncover, recover is my motto. First, you have to discover what the problem is. You have to recover from the problem, and then you have to move on with the solution. So uh, baby steps are really important. Find things that are anchored in your head and anchored um, in life. Uh, it's funny because the truth about depression, for me anyway, is that it became a very safe place. And once you feel safe in depression and it's the place you're familiar with, it's really hard to now say, I'm happy, you know, because you found a place that at least your insecurities are secure in that space. So what I learned to do and which I would encourage people is when you, I'll make it up, um, that person is really ugly. I'm making something up, right? You stop yourself and say, hold on, that person is probably loved by somebody, um, maybe has a family, children love that person. Um, they love themselves. Don't be so judgmental. Uh, it's your own insecurity and your own depression that's lashing out at these things to make you feel better. And that's not the path you want to go down. So try to change the narrative. Try to move away from uh, that kind of thing. Um, try to get control of your brain. Like I used to meditate. And uh, one night I had a very big fight with myself that I was in control. And my other part of my brain said, no, you're not. You're smoking. I said, I can quit anytime. That's it, smoke for 10 years. And, I, and the brain said, no, you can't. And when I came out of my meditation, I went over, grabbed the pack of cigarettes, crushed it, threw it away, and never smoked a cigarette again in my life. So um, that was through a series of really deciding that I wanted to be in control of my life. Um, you need, what I needed to, I keep, I keep trying to say you, and I have to put it on myself because not every path is for everybody, but what I learned to do was to do it in baby steps, find things that can make me happy. And when I started thinking negatively, I turned it around and stopped and said, no, you need to rethink this thing. Like in the car, I used to scream at people, you know, are you stupid idiot? How can you do And I thought, wait a minute, they, they don't, they can't hear me, nor do they care. So who's going to walk away with all frustration and anger? Me. Do I want that in my body? No. So now when they cut me off, I go, you know, if you need to be five minutes ahead of me, go ahead. I don't care anymore. I just want to be safe, comfortable, relaxed, and I'll get there. If it's five minutes later, I don't care anymore. So again, um, I think it's baby steps. Absolutely seek help. Do not be afraid to ask. Do not be afraid to say, I don't even know what to ask. I know I'm in trouble. I don't want to feel this way anymore. How do I do this? And then professionals like yourself, um, will start to guide you in paths that, that can help you get out of it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the pro. <laughs> so that's all the time that we have for today's episode. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule, John, to join us. And thank you again for participating and inspiring our many listeners, especially those who are going into the moving industry, with your incredible story. Now, we hope that you have all enjoyed today's episode, and I'm very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season four of the Happiness Journey podcast, filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listened to today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. The reason most people never reach their goal 
is that they don't define them or never seriously consider them as believable or achievable. Winners can tell you where they're going, what they plan to do along the way, and who will they be sharing their adventure with. Many fear their dreams as being too big or feeling they don't deserve those dreams. Bigger they are, more worthy they are to pursue. There is no reason to live life in the safe lane because more risk you take, more reward you can benefit from. All risk can be calculated and it is with knowledge and patience that you can make sound decision as to what will work for you or not. Don't jump into anything without understanding what you're getting into as these are unnecessary risks that may hinder your success long-term. My name is Dr. Dan Emzelag, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.